0: Hi, this is Anna Hosniang. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps.
1: Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio
0: app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome
1: to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy.
1: And if you've been listening to the podcast, you know how much Katie and I love a good lost city. We've talked about Atlantis recently, and a little while before that, we talked about the Norte Chico in South America. So these cities that disappear or empires that appear out of nowhere and then disappear again seem to fascinate
2: us. So today, we're going to do the lost city of Angkor. And when Sarah said this earlier, I was like, oh, you want to talk about Angkor Wat? And she said, no, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, it's just one temple, Katie. So today, it's ruins and peasants who grow rice in northwestern Cambodia. That's what you think of when you're thinking of Angkor Wat. But back in medieval times, it was something else. It was a very impressive, very huge city with a lot of amazing works of engineering. But what went wrong? Well to do that, let's start out with a little bit of background on Angkor, which starts in AD eight hundred. And Sarah was saying it's lovely to be able to start with one person instead of whole. The people from this river came and Exactly. It's nice to have one warrior type guy coming into the picture early on. And in this case, it's a powerful regional king named Jayavarman too. And Jayavarman
1: consolidated the chiefdoms in Cambodia, and he formed the kingdom of Angkor. And he's the one who decides that the Khmer royalty, the Cambodian royalty, would be linked to the gods, creating the cult of the Devaraja, which is literally the god king or king of the gods. So this proves to be a very important part of our story, this close relationship between the, the king's and the gods, and the monuments they would build to both themselves and to the gods.
2: Right. And Angkor is his capital, the capital of the Khmer, or Cambodian Empire, from the 9th century to the 15th century AD, which is known as the classical era of Cambodian history. And we are going to have a little bit of river people descendant range. Right. We started with the king, but
1: the, the people were descended from the Funan of the Mekong Delta. And the Khmer Empire is highly influenced by Hinduism and Buddhism and that comes from centuries old contact with Indian traders but they still retain some of their traditional religions they kind of blended blended it all together
2: right and this is a huge territory we should add it goes from the tip of the Indochinese peninsula north to the modern Yunnan province in China and from Vietnam westward toward the Bay of Bengal, which all sounds completely insane, but the city of Angkor was bigger than Rhode Island, if that gives you an idea.
1: Yeah, and for such a huge city, they fund huge construction pro- projects. And the biggest one that Katie mentioned earlier, Angkor Wat, probably the most famous. Um, it's a temple complex that was built in the 12th century. There's also Angkor Tom, another temple complex, which was built in 1200 by King Jayavarman VII. And it's after that king, Jayavarman the Seventh when Angkor starts to go downhill. And by 1431, it's been partially abandoned. By the time the Portuguese come on the scene, Portuguese missionaries in the 16th century, the empire is thoroughly on its way out the kings of Angkor do come back for a little bit in the 16th century, but not for long. So we're wondering what happened. But in the meantime, Angkor lies... I, I don't want to say forgotten, because Angkor Wat is maintained by um, monks and hermits, and it's considered an important pilgrimage site in Southeast Asia all through these sort of down years. But I think the... Um, vastness of the city of Angkor is forgotten,
2: or at least ignored. Yeah. Some travelers who, um quote, unquote, discovered Angkor thought they'd found a lost city founded by Alexander the Great or the Roman Empire. They knew nothing about it.
1: But the French colonial regime in Cambodia uh, found the site, not found it, but they started getting interested in it in the 1860s, and they partially restored the temples and the reservoirs and canals that lace through this mammoth complex of Angkor, and uh, published a, a French explorer, Henri Mouhot, actually reintroduces the temples to the West
2: with a journal, Travels in Siam, Cambodia, and Laos. And to bring it up to the present time, in the 20th century, of course, there's a lot of war and upheaval in Cambodia, and there's war damage done to the site. There's theft, but mostly a lot of neglect because it's too dangerous of a place for most people to go to. Yeah, and take care of it. Right. There's engulfing vegetation and erosion, and Sarah made me look at pictures of strangler figs, which are completely insane.
1: Just imagine, um, it's like a vine slash tree just engulfing these stone temples. It's ridiculous. So Google image that. Yeah. And in 1992, it becomes a World Heritage Site, which is a great step to preserving any kind of cultural monument like this. And by 1994, it was scanned by the radar of Space Shuttle Endeavor, which turns out to be a very important uh, key to Angkor's understanding later on in the
2: podcast. Because there's so much more that we didn't know about. But let's go back and figure out what Angkor was like and why we should care about it. So during the medieval times, the Khmer erected thousands of shrines in Angkor and went on a building spree. And the city, it's not just built haphazardly.
1: It's very much tied to the Hindu idea of the universe. The city of Angkor actually was a symbolic universe. Itself that was structured according to the Hindu cosmology. So, for example, the outer walls of the temples are meant to recall mountains that were believed to edge the world. And the reservoirs and canals and moats that lace through the cities are meant to symbolize the waters of the cosmos. So, it's a pretty cool idea
2: to to model your city on the universe. Yes, city planners take note. I'm pretty sure Atlanta wasn't designed that way. No, I don't think so. The temples weren't only religious centers, they were also commercial centers, and many of them operated as small cities, while other ones as larger cities. There were up to somewhere around 750,000 people in Angkor, which was the capital of the Khmer Kingdom. And it is the most extensive urban complex of the pre-industrial world. So that's... No small also accomplishment. Amazing. We only have one first-hand account, though, of what Angkor was really like. And that's from Zhao Daoguan, a Chinese diplomat who visited at the end of the 13th century. And you can find parts of his account on Google Books if you search for it. But he discusses a little bit about the city itself and some about city life. He talks about entering the city and there's a moat surrounding it with a border of 54 giants holding a snake There's a golden bridge, gilded lions, a pavilion supported by stone elephants, um, a bronze Buddha in a lake with water coming out of its belly button.
1: We've also got stories about fireworks and boar fighting, royal processions with elephants, horses clad in gold, palace women in flowers. It all sounds very luxurious. We shouldn't only look at that side of the account, though. The life for your average peasant in Angkor probably wasn't really great you would likely work really hard on a temple because constant building sprees require constant work from peasants. Uh, you'd grow a lot of rice to pay tributes because the whole system relied on rice as currency. And you'd also probably be drafted into war because there were constant wars with the armies in Thailand and Champa, which is Vietnam today.
2: But he also does talk a little bit about middle-class life, so that would be me and you, Sarah. (laughs) And the house he's staying at has matting, but no tables, chairs, or beds. They cook rice over a clay stove, and they sit on mats and eat from ceramic plates and drink wine from tin cups that's made out of honey, rice, leaves, and water. They sleep on mats on the floor, and apparently it's so hot people got up during the night to bathe. And a few families all share a ditch as a latrine, and when it's full, they would dig another one or have a slave do it. Apparently, wealthy families had more than 100 slaves each, which they got from the uplands. And they spoke Khmer, but they had no rights. And the other thing I thought was really interesting was what happened when two families fought. They would take a member from each family and stick them each in a tower. And then after a certain period of time, you would get to come out of confinement, and they would... Look to see what sort of ailments you'd had. You know, perhaps you'd had a fever or some other sickness. And that's how they determined who was guilty. That's so weirdly passive, isn't it? Well, I keep thinking of Monty Python and the Holy Grail because I try to apply that to most things. Yeah. You know, figure out whether she's a witch, figure out who's guilty. And the king's punishments could range from a fine to crushing your limbs. So great. I hope you weren't the one who got the fever. And they also collected... Human gall. From I read that too. That was weird. It was thought to give both men and elephants courage. And if you were a person who needed courage, you could drink it mixed with wine. If you were an elephant, you would have it poured over you in a different mixture. But they had it's a like commissioner. The way would be the right the best way to go. There was someone who was supposed <laughs> avoid to avoid drink the, the gall. So, you know, human gall, courage for elephants, things you learn.
1: But unfortunately, this amazing account we have from Zhao is, that's it. We have things that were carved on the stone temples, but all of the administrative buildings and the homes from the highest person to the lowest were made of wood and consequently haven't survived. So we have very little to go on when we're trying to figure out how Angkor fell. What happened? And the historically suspected causes are invaders, religion changes, maritime trade kind of shuts down the coastal city. And um, so we have to guess which one of those. choose your
2: own ending podcast. We're going to give you some options. Yeah. And you can pick what you think makes the most sense. So one option is rivalry. The Khmer kings each had a few wives and several children. And so there were constant battles over which baby would be the king and plenty of usurpers to the throne. As Sarah said, it was like the war of the roses times a zillion.
1: Yeah. Imagine just never knowing who was going to be the next king. That puts a lot of, right. No clear line of succession. Yeah. And then another potential problem was war. Some think that the warriors from the Ayutthaya state sacked Angkor in 1431. And, They did invade the city and made off with a lot of treasure and women, but they probably didn't completely destroy the city. Well, obviously, they didn't completely destroy it. We have some left. We still have Angkor Wat. um, They didn't damage it severely. And uh, some historians think that's unlikely because the ruler of the Ayutthaya installs his son on the throne. So why would you completely sack the city and destroy most of it if you're installing your son on the throne?
2: And that brings us to option three, which is religion. (laughs) Anthropologists call Angkor the regal ritual city. They love religion. It's a big part of their daily lives. And the kings are the world emperors of Hindu lore. But by the 13th and 14th centuries, Theravada Buddhism starts to surpass Hinduism. And it preaches social equality, which isn't something that was a big part of life in Angkor. So perhaps slaving away at growing rice just to give it to the king for his um, gilded elephant processions.
1: Doesn't sound so appealing anymore, does no, it? No, it
2: really didn't, because that whole regal ritual thing relied on tribute and taxes. So you were paying for these insanely luxurious ceremonies. Yeah, and as we already said, the currency is rice,
1: so you're growing huge amounts of rice to feed the priests and the dancers and, and the concubines. <laughs> yeah, the temple workers, and it just... Uh, this is a, a plausible explanation for why this society would collapse. Revolts. But we have another option. That's that it was just plain abandoned, that the royal court ditched the city. And this is plausible because the rulers were obsessed with building their own new temples. They wouldn't take care of the old ones. Most of our uh, kind of cultural monuments, at least public monuments, there's a certain amount of upkeep and um, and... You know, people people like things that are old, but that was not the case with the Angkor rulers. Oh, shiny and new. They would just let the old ones fall into into decay. Kind of reminded me a little bit about the. It kind of reminded me a little bit of the Egyptian pharaohs pilfering the rocks from the old pyramids and stuff. But so it's possible that the rulers just left the town headed to a location closer to the Mekong River, which is near Cambodia's modern capital of uh, Phnom Penh. And that way they could have easier sea trading and
2: um, just move on with the times. But there is an even more modern theory, which is water trouble. The empire's growth depended on huge rice harvests. And to do that, of course, you need a steady water supply. And we mentioned earlier how good at engineering this particular empire was.
1: But it wasn't just engineering amazing temple complexes and things to worship their rulers and gods. We were talking about all the canals and the reservoirs, and that does more than symbolize the Hindu cosmology of oceans and water. They also were legitimate reservoirs, and the... uh, There's a great article in the National Geographic from a few months back by Richard Stone, which puts forth the idea that the civilization rose because they figured out a way to manage the monsoon season,
2: which, you know, it's kind of an on or off rain switch. Right. And once you're not dependent on the weather like that, you have time to do things like build great civilizations. Yeah,
1: because you can increase your rice yields. You can grow during times of year where you normally wouldn't be able to grow rice. And so this theory suggests that they rose to prominence because they figured out how to manipulate this and that maybe they fell because they lost that control.
2: They built one reservoir, you talked about I think that's what, five miles long by one and a half miles wide. The West so,
1: Beret. Yeah,
2: these aren't it's piddling little reserves.
1: Huge. If you see a picture of it, it I mean, I I can't even compare it to a pool or something
2: like that. It looks like a lake except that it's perfectly rectangular. <laughs> And here's how it worked. During the summer monsoon months, the overflow channels took care of the excess water to save it for later. The rain stopped in October, November, and the irrigation channels dispensed the stored water.
1: So, yeah, you can grow rice when you shouldn't be able to, and you're not going to be quite as flooded as you normally would be during the monsoon season. And one of the ways that we figured out how these reservoirs worked where there's NASA images we were talking about earlier. Right, from Endeavor. From Endeavor. And they're great because they showed areas that were still inaccessible because of violence in Cambodia or just lawlessness in certain areas. And the images showed that the berets or these big reservoirs had inlets and outlets. So that proved that they were for irrigation. They weren't just for religious purposes. But by the early 13th century, the waterworks began to deteriorate, and we're not quite sure why that happened. It might have been that floods broke some of the masonry, or it just became too massive a system for the engineers to handle. You can kind of think of Atlanta's own sewer system. Seriously. (laughs) um, A massive overhaul. Yeah, there's there's not much you can do about it unless you embark on a massive overhaul. And they might have not been equipped to do that, as we're not either. But um, the 13th century surprised people because it was a little
2: early for
1: the trouble to start. If
2: you're paying attention to the timeline, Anchor was still around in the 16th century.
1: Yeah. But here's what's suspected to have happened. So while the waterworks are in disrepair, that's a problem, but may be manageable if you still have a regular monsoon season. But unfortunately, their disrepair coincides perfectly with the beginning of the Little Ice Age. And that's something that people have long known happened in Europe, starting in 1300 and going on for a couple of centuries. It contributed to really abnormally cold winters and um, unseasonably cold summers. And until recently, people didn't know if this also extended to Asia.
2: And it definitely did. And it made Angkor experience these mega droughts. Sometimes there was no monsoon at all. Sometimes there was a huge monsoon, basically nothing you can plan against. And if you're already falling apart, you're not equipped to handle it.
1: So if you have an unstable monsoon season and um, waterworks that are failing, you can't guarantee a harvest. And we know... That the Little Ice Age did hit Asia in part because of Po Mu, I think that's how you say it, cypress tree rings. Um, Some of these trees are nine centuries old. So they were around in the height of Angor and in its fall. And they show stress, like major stress from the monsoons, heavy monsoons, no monsoons.
2: And of course, with all of this water trouble, we end up with a low rice yield, which could lead to starving, turmoil, a weak army, and so on and so forth. So that's
1: why the choose your own ending. Any of them could really be right because we can have this water-centered answer. But if your people are starving because there's no water to grow rice, or you know you're flooded out and you can't grow rice, um, your army is underfed. You're more susceptible to the Ayataya invaders, and it, it kind of ties all
2: the all the endings together in an interesting way. And there's another environmental theory about environmental degradation causing the fall of Angkor, which was about deforestation and overusing the land, which some people think led to flooding and silted canals, which are really no good. Yeah,
1: if you silt silt up your waterworks, they're not going to really do you any good anymore.
2: Well, all of these possibilities are interesting to ponder. Hopefully, we'll have a chance to figure out the real answer now that Cambodia is open for tourism.
1: Yeah, it's actually a big source of money for Cambodia now, which, uh, you know, couldn't really have much of a tourist trade for decades because of war and internal strife. but um Unfortunately, the tourism also threatens
2: the structural integrity of the temples. It's always a double-edged Debbie sword. Downer. downer but the same but thing about Pompeii. We're reading about people coming to see Pompeii and then touching everything yeah, ruining it. Yeah, there's
1: erosion problems from just physical contact. But also new resorts and hotels springing up are supposedly sucking the groundwater dry beneath Angkor, which weakens some of the foundations of the buildings.
2: And if you were looking to go loot some antiquities, there (laughs) actually aren't many left after centuries of people doing so. Some are in France and some are in Cambodia's National Museum, very far away.
1: Well, I, for one, would definitely like to visit Angkor and Angkor Wat and the whole shebang.
2: So would I. And I think it would be a lot easier to visit than Atlantis, considering we don't know where it is, or the Norte Chico, considering that they're gone.
1: Well, I think that about wraps it up, unless we think of any more lost cities to talk of in the future.
2: So if you'd like to read more, check out our article, Five Abandoned Cities. And don't forget to check out our blog, which you can find on the homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com
0: homepage. You're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So, subscribe to the women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck?